Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be talking with Amanda McCulloch, the Data Visualization Society's Operations Director and the Data Visualization Lead at Excella. As the world confronts the outbreak of COVID-19, there's never been a more important time for data journalists to tell visual stories with accuracy and clarity. With Amanda's unique mix of experience in public health and data visualization, she talks to us about the importance of responsible design and how we can create understandable charts and graphs that better explain to our audiences what's happening in these uncertain times. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Thanks so much for joining us today on Conversations with Data. Tell us about you. Tell us about your role at the Data Visualization Society and your other work as well. So I'm delighted to be here today talking about data viz with you guys. Uh, I am currently the data visualization lead at Excella. We're a technology consulting firm based in the DC area. Uh, we serve all different range of clients from federal agencies over to nonprofits. And so I do a lot of work with both leading data visualization teams and creating data visualizations as part of that work. I also spend a good amount of my outside of work time volunteering as the operations director for the Data Visualization Society. Uh, we are a nonprofit organization that was founded back in February of 2019. In under in about a year, we reached almost 12,000 new members from over 130 countries around the world, which was really exciting to see the growth and interest in bringing people together from across different areas of expertise. So many data visualization communities right now, or at least last year, were focused around tools, right? Tableau user groups, Power BI user groups, graphic designers, all clustering together. And our goal was to bring together people from all these different areas so that we could share best practices and knowledge and ideas and more cross-pollinate across our different tech stacks. And for us, that's been really exciting to see how we can learn from each other and how we can help evolve data visualization to really be a practice profession. So I understand you have a new initiative uh, with the Data Visualization Society. Um, could, do you want to tell us about that? Sure. So as part of the response around COVID-19, uh, we saw a lot of enthusiasm from people in the data visualization and broader technology community around how can I help? How can I take and apply my skills and knowledge and expertise in such a way that I help in the response? Uh, one of the other areas we've really been considering as an aside that helped to inform us making the choice to launch this initiative is a lot of people who are just diving in and dabbling with the case data that's been made so accessible through groups like John Hopkins and others. And that can be challenging, right? Um, the case data that we have right now is uncertain due to low testing rates and has a lot of complexity around it from an epidemiology perspective as we try to learn about a new and emerging disease. And so as a team, we talked about how can we help to channel a lot of that energy and enthusiasm and drive to do good and do data visualization for good as part of this response uh, into meaningful, useful projects. So we set up a new initiative for matchmaking data visualization experts and specialists from various countries with different languages and different knowledge of different tech stacks and tools 
matching those people who are volunteering with our group with organizations who need help and support around visualizing data related to COVID. That could mean building a quick and easy to use dashboard that you can use to track cases super locally, since many of the open dashboards on different wide, widely used publications are all focused on more global or state or county level information. Or it could mean helping to create infographics to help to communicate risk and information to a local population. And in our first four days of launching the initiative, we had more than 475 people sign up to volunteer, which was overwhelming and exciting. We also had a whole group of initial organizations who submitted requests for support. And because we had such a great response, we've been able to mobilize small teams of people who can work together to try to make progress faster and develop things for these different groups, which include people from around the world. We had applications from organizations in Spain, in the Philippines, in Thailand, in the US. Uh, and it's great to see the global community really coming together around how we can help and support each other. Now, I know you're a data visualization expert, but talk to us about your background in public health. So my background in public health is actually what helped to nudge me towards uh, wanting to find ways to connect health organizations, civil society, people who need this kind of data visualization support and data visualization folks who might not have the deep subject matter expertise required to really be effective in creating visualizations or responding to questions around COVID. Uh, I actually did my undergrad degree in zoology and sociology, believe it or not, at Miami of Ohio. Uh, did a double major, headed off and got my master's in public health at Boston University, and went on to work for eight years in global health and international development. So while my career started off as an analyst, uh, ghostwriting the reports that went up to Congress about USAID's achievements and all the numbers that go with that, it evolved into doing more work on monitoring and evaluation, visualizing evaluation results and findings, building dashboards, and working with health information systems. And some of the most meaningful and impactful work for me in data visualization has really been working with local civil society advocacy organizations in different countries on building their local data visualization capacity. What do you think the responsibility is and, and the role is for someone who is trying to take data and make it meaningful for the general public? There's just so much information coming at us, both in the form of articles and dashboards and new maps that tell us about uh, how challenging it could be for our, our hospital system here in the U.S. And I think it's our responsibility as data visualization designers to think about the emotional response that what we create will evoke in people. It's why we talked a lot, I think, amongst the data viz community about the challenges of using bright, bold colors like red on the maps and the graphs that we're seeing, which can kind of evoke a certain response of, of panic or make things look really awful when you see red dots popping up all over the world. Um, I think we also have to think about how are we encouraging people to look at the situation and, and look at the information? How are we embedding a call to action um, in what we create? How are we having our case counts and our, our tracking of daily case information be packaged with things that help people feel empowered to make local individual decisions that can really make a difference in the current environment. So thinking about how we um, bring in language around flattening the curve, how do we encourage people to disengage from news, right? Sometimes watching the case counts grow is not the most constructive use of anyone's time if it won't actually change your day-to-day -day personal individual behaviors. And so helping people understand that it's okay to disengage, I think is just as important as putting things out there that are truthful and honest and meaningful, but hopefully that don't incite panic. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's hard, right? I mean, when every, every, the common question I get nowadays is it's like, well, which dashboard or tracker are you using to watch the case numbers grow? And I'm, my response is here are a couple I think are well designed. In general, though, the day to day change in the case numbers for me at a local level isn't changing my choices to go ahead and do social distancing, stay home, and try to do what I can to slow the spread of, of COVID 19 here in the US. Um, I think there are some great visualizations coming out that try to package that context, right? I think John Burns Murdoch's charts that he has on the Financial Times site that get updated daily with input from experts and getting feedback that actually say, like, here's what the different curves look like for different countries and have small annotations that say, and here's what these countries have done or did that helped make those curves flatten out or that changed the shape or the trajectory of that curve. And so I think packaging visualization. So it's not just a chart. It's not just some, some bars or some lines, but it has context with it that helps us understand the numbers and why they're going a certain direction is so important because that's, that's the piece we need to make sense of kind of what's in it for me. Why should I care? Why should I engage? Why should I worry or not? Let's talk about demographics for a bit. I mean, how do those influence the number of cases? That's a big, also a big question. So I think there's two ways to look at that, right? So there's both the population numbers, because we've seen a lot of criticism of why are we looking at cases and not cases normalized against a population size. I mean, you'd expect just the total cases in a, a much larger country like the US to be higher than in a smaller country like a, a small European nation like Belgium. But when we're early stage in an epidemic or in a pandemic, counting those individual cases and helping have traceability about where they're coming out and where they're happening is really important. So it's, it's not quite at a place where calculating those kind of rates are as helpful in tracking the pace of growth for this epidemic. I think um, the other side of it, though, that you mentioned is, is demographics and how do demographics uh, kind of temper or influence how we think about what we're seeing for the case numbers. We know that with COVID-19 from the data that we have available and the clinical prognoses we've seen in some of the countries more advanced in their epidemic curves, so places like China and Italy, that uh, people who are older are more likely to have more severe cases and more at risk of death as part of being infected with uh, the novel coronavirus. And so as we look at and we compare different countries, we have to think about also how their demographic profiles may lend them to being more at risk or being higher risk than others. So for example, in Italy, um, the median age is around 45 years of age. If you compare that to other countries and even kind of skewing the other way to emerging, emerging countries that are just now starting to hit our maps and everything else, um, in Sub-Saharan Africa, there was a recent article by Science Magazine that actually talked about how the average age is lowest in the world. The median age is less than 20. And so how does having a, uh, a demographic popula or a population pyramid that skews young actually help? I wouldn't say with a protective effect, but I'd be curious to see how all of this plays out because there has been some speculation that that might be a benefit. Um, I think the, the science article does a nice job of talking about the ways in which um, having a younger demographic group might actually help them as different African countries start to, to battle the same disease. Uh, but I think that thinking about demographics and how we compare countries is important. Thinking about health systems and how we compare countries is important. I think it's hard to take and just plot cases as its own indicator and kind of assume that it just, they happen in isolation of all the systemic factors around them. 
doesn't give us a full picture of what's working and what's not. If you look at South Korea as a, as a contrast um, to some of the other countries, they've taken a really targeted approach to how they actually slow the spread of the virus and how they identify where the virus is spreading. And there's so much of this that harkens back to things that we've done and, and really targeted uh, approaches to addressing issues around the spread of HIV. And there are so many things that make me think of that, which is actually why it makes me really happy that Deborah Burks uh, is one of the people who's working on this in the U.S. Because as someone who worked in the fight against HIV for a long time, she's a huge advocate for good quality data. How similar do you think that these diseases are? So I don't think I'm in any way um, the right person to answer how similar different diseases are in the sense of being able to compare them. I am I'm very transparent that I am a public health data viz person. But one thing I can say is that there, there was a, there's a graphic that your comment makes me think about that was from the Information is Beautiful graphics pack that came out early on. Um, and it's been updated with new data over time. And one of the graphics that caught a lot of people's attention was benchmarking COVID at that point, I think it had even a different name. I think it was still the, the novel coronavirus NCOV name. Um, that they were benchmarking the deaths per day for the new emerging novel coronavirus against endemic diseases like malaria and TB and things that we have that are endemic to different countries, which means we just have them in general circulation, and things for which we have good testing. We have treatments. In some cases, we have vaccines, and we have more and better data. And so I think that it's really misleading to compare something that is an early stage pandemic and a metric like deaths per day against the whatever the quantification of deaths per day was for other endemic diseases, because it's just at a different stage, right? And the worry that I have looking at that from a visualization perspective is that when someone looks at that chart and they see that the coronavirus is a really tiny, tiny, tiny bar relative to the deaths per day in the world from, say, malaria, that we think it's not important to try to pay attention and take certain actions to try to slow that spread and try to avoid overwhelming our healthcare system and all those pieces. I think you've kind of talked a bit about case fatalities. Oh, case fatality rates. Yes, that's a, that's a fun, sticky one. Uh, I think early case fatality rates, a curious, curious measure when we're talking about kind of broad interest in understanding what's happening in the world around a disease. Uh, we saw early on there was a viral tweet that went around about R naught being really high and inflated for COVID-19 that drove people to be really worried about um, how many people would die, which has come to be not entirely unfounded. Um, and we've seen a lot of people calculating a case fatality rate by taking doing the simple math of saying, well, let's take the number of deaths and divide it by the number of cases. And that sounds like delightfully simple algebra, right? <laughs> Uh, but the challenge that we have with that number is that it's actually really hard to calculate an accurate, generalizable case fatality rate for this disease when the data we have is so uncertain. I mean, our denominator, our number of cases is probably wrong and significantly undercounted because of limited testing. And then um, our numerator is going to be lagging, right? We have people who are currently sick or ill um, with COVID-19 who unfortunately might uh, might eventually die because of this disease. And so we don't have a very good numerator. We don't have a very good denominator. Um, and as a result, we can make estimations. We're better off making estimations for smaller groups or smaller subpopulations. But we, those are, at this point, still only estimates. And I've been really proud to see some of the 
different news outlets who have pivoted from reporting single point fixed case fatality rates um, and pivoted away from those over to reporting ranges, which is much more accurate at this point to say, here's the range within which we think that the case fatality rate falls for a given country or a given demographic group. I think though that on the flip side, having some of those ranges available to give some people some more understanding of the severity we should treat this disease with is really important. When I talk to my dad, who is in high-risk groups for different reasons, being older, um, some existing health conditions, uh, when I talk to him about what it was that made him feel like he should really take the social distancing pieces uh, recommendations seriously, uh, his response was that two of the, I think, 20 articles I sent my parents, my poor parents who are on an onslaught of emails from me, uh, but the, I think the, the two things he said that stuck out to him most were the, the um, estimations around case fatality rates for people who are over 60 and older and that it made it feel much more real. It's not like a 1% risk that you have walking into almost any surgery. It's, it's, it's much higher. Uh, uh, and then second... Um, was learning a bit more about the disease prognosis. And you keep hearing people talk about mild cases and mild symptoms, but mild still functionally means that you're uh, really feeling terrible and awful at home for a good long while. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's something like an easy common cold, right? Uh, mild means that you're not in the hospital. And so learning more about the disease prognosis from a great article from National Geographic about what coronavirus does to the body uh, was also really illuminating for him. So for me, it's been interesting because I sit such in a, a firm space of having a broad network of public health people who care a lot about this and data people who care a lot about this, but talking to people who could be impacted by this um, more disproportionately than others has been really illuminating to me to kind of understand what information is sticky and help to think about instead of clamping down and saying we can't report anything because it's uncertain, trying to better help to explain the uncertainty and saying this is the best that we know. And I thought it was interesting in your Medium article that you said, you know, sometimes you shouldn't do a chart or a map or a date of it. Sometimes you just don't need that. And I thought that was a really interesting point. So that's, that was one of my, my key reasons for really writing that article, the 10 considerations before you create another chart about COVID-19, was at the end of the day, I think we all should ask ourselves, like, who are we creating these visualizations for? And are we adding value in the public sphere? Or are we adding to the noise? And if you've built a visualization or a dashboard that's about your county or maybe just your state that helps someone understand the numbers better, and maybe you've vetted it by a by a friend of yours who knows health data and you didn't misrepresent the case in from the case fatality rate and everything else. I mean, maybe that adds a lot of value in this space, but a lot of what I was seeing coming out in the early stages, especially with the U S epidemic were a lot of the same exact information plotted on different charts. And I would much rather amplify people who are spending every day right now, like John and like Harry Stevens's work at the Washington post and other, other people, I would much rather amplify the great work they're doing and they're putting a ton of time into, then try to go ahead and mock up my own, my own Tableau dashboard. What do you think we need to be mindful about when it comes to mapping the coronavirus? Um, so Kenneth, Kenneth Field um, from Esri has a really excellent long-form article all about the nuances of maps, and maps especially in the context of COVID-19 and a pandemic. Um, I think maps are helpful for enabling our geographic understanding. And a disease 
peace outbreak is one of those times when maps are really relevant, right? There are times we, we put things on maps because they look pretty, and I acknowledge that. And then there are all other times when the, the geography matters, proximity matters. And so I think that this is actually an example where maps are really helpful. But think about kind of what you're presenting on the map. So for example, one of the debates is around the graduated symbol maps, like those bubble maps that you were talking about, um, having those little bubbles that represent a certain size or group of uh, cases versus filled or chloropleth maps where you actually fill in a state or a country to go ahead and represent a certain, um, a certain number of cases based on a saturation or a hue. Now, the bubbles, especially when they're bright red, are a bit a bit frustrating to look at, especially because they're bright red in my mind. They look like targets. And that to me just isn't something that I, I care to engage with. But the challenge we have on the flip side with the filled maps is that, let's think about it. The state of Texas is a lot bigger geographically than the state of Vermont. And so if I have five cases in Texas and five cases in Vermont, and they look basically the same color, I'm still gonna see a whole lot more Texas, right? And so the challenge that like the container or size of the container is fixed and we're just or changing the saturation to represent a number, makes those also challenging. I mean, Russia having one case pop up versus Vietnam. I mean, those are just gonna have a very different visual impact as you look at how red or how filled is this map. And so here, I actually really prefer maps that go down to lower levels of, of granularity that focus more on looking at county level information. I think the USA Facts has a great, great uh, dashboard not even a dashboard, almost like there's four simple charts just pushed together. And in it, they have both a tile grid map, all those little hexagons organized to be kind of the order of the U.S. states that gives a, a saturated color for how many cases um, the state has had. So each state is the, same, is the same size, right? So we can more easily compare those between states. And then their more detailed map is actually a county map. And in a, in a situation like with coronavirus, if I'm living in Illinois, I care a lot more about knowing about the cases that are in Northern Illinois and Southern Wisconsin than I might about cases in Southern Illinois. So I think this is an example of where the granularity of maps matters. When we're looking at mapping um, hospital bed capacity or when hospitals will be overwhelmed, like they did in the great ProPublica article, um, they did their maps where the outlines on the map aren't administrative units like county or state. They're actually hospital referral regions. And they have the 306 hospital referral regions, which is far more relevant, right? If I'm thinking about like what hospital is closest to me and where do I go to to get to an ICU? So I think that there have been some great things done around mapping. I think the red coloring is problematic on mapping like it is with much of our other visualizations around COVID-19. Um, and I think it's an, there are some great easy examples to see in Kenneth's blog that compare just like the exact same map, but made with either a red palette or a blue palette. And it just doesn't strike the same amount of alarm. Um, the thing I've been seeing popping up a little bit more is now heat maps, where you see almost kind of those shady, fuzzy things um, that look more like an eye tracing study. And I'll be curious to see if more of those pop up over time that are very much more focused on that local information about where we're seeing cases of coronavirus. And what about the small design choices? What do coders and designers need to be aware of? consider how people who aren't coders and designers are going to see the information. Choosing to make the color, like Data Wrapper has a great set of responsible charts and they talk about some of these design choices too. And 
things like not using red, making your palette accessible. If you're looking at different saturations of a hue, are they distinct enough that someone who has uh, who's colorblind or has a vision impairment is able to easily see that information? Thinking about how someone will interpret and understand the data. When we plot data and we put it, we put points on a chart or a graph. So if I make you a lollipop chart of case fatality rates, I'm assigning a certain amount of certainty to that data. And so how do we enable and help understanding by plotting things that include ranges that have some indication of uncertainty? And how do we, how do we pick charts and graphs that tell the right story and that are easy to understand? And how do we, and functionally, how do we add text and other information that even people who don't understand how to read our charts and graphs can still see what the key takeaways are? And I think we have to think about kind of who our audience is and what they're consuming. And today, the audience for coronavirus charts and COVID-19 charts isn't just public health professionals, and it's not just clinicians. It's really something that the entire world is looking at. And so we have to be mindful of how our charts might be misinterpreted. What are some of the silver linings you've seen that have come out from this pandemic from a data visualization perspective? I think that one of the most amazing thing that has come out of this is that, well, we can certainly point to examples of misleading data visualizations. We can also point to the fact that the flatten the curve graphic probably belongs in, in a top five hall of fame somewhere for being an illustration of data and information, not based in quantitative numbers, I would, my, I would remind you, but it is, a, it is itself a, an informational graphic that helped to inspire an entire country and really the world to make certain choices that are really hard to make around staying home, around limiting your activity, all those different pieces. And so I think that we've seen the power of data visualization to be able to help people understand complex concepts. We've seen the ways that data visualization can engage people in information, which is wonderful. I think we can also think about the ways in which uh, we are packaging and communicating numbers for the general public that are easier to understand but still represent data correctly and accurately and effectively. Uh, my hope is that one of our biggest learnings about this, honestly, is that we start looking more into and continue to focus on iterating on how we illustrate uncertainty better. I mean, making data and information both visual and easy to understand and highlighting where there is uncertainty is a challenging thing to do because the best visualizations and the best content that really is sticky for people and they engage with and is accurate and correct are created as collaborations, not just one person sitting behind a computer screen most of the time. Throughout this entire podcast and in your articles, you talk about responsible design and the importance of ethics and data. I'm curious, who influenced you? So one of the biggest influences in my life and with my worldview around what I think about public health as a practice and a profession before I was ever a data person came from one of my professors named Bill Bicknell, who is, uh, has since passed. He passed in 2012. And a lot of his lessons and his kind of highlights reel is codified in his last lecture that is available on BU's website. And he always kicked off his semester of teaching for the Intro to Global Health Policy class. And this is a guy who had been the Commissioner of Public Health for the state of Massachusetts, board certified physician, did a bunch of international development work, was in the MPH, the public health sphere. And he always said that uh, in public health, it is, it is the art and science of deciding who dies, when, and with what degree of misery. And if you start there, 
rather than starting with deciding who dies when and with what degree of happiness or another positive metric, if you don't start with the negative consequences of your decisions about where you allocate information, where you allocate resources, how you act on information or don't, all those different pieces, if you don't come to terms with the fact that your decisions have consequences, you have missed the point of being in public health and you are ignoring the consequences of your decisions. And nowadays when I'm seeing all of the conversations about the choices that physicians will have to make about rationing, which he talks about at length in his last lecture. He's like, we always are rationing, right? It's just that sometimes those decisions are a lot harder than, than others. Sometimes it's more, when do you get care? Not if you'll get care. But he always uh, instilled a very strong moral compass in all of us that the choices and decisions that we make as public health professionals can ultimately probably kill more people than physicians might in their offices but we will never be held to the same level of account. And I really miss kind of him and that amount of just ethical responsibility he placed on public health professionals. Um, and I think still echoes through a lot of us who he trained and taught. Uh, but I think today, a lot of those words and a lot of his thoughts and, and reflections are really relevant as we think about the data we have or don't, about the rationing decisions that people are going to be forced to make and about just the ethics of what we do in public health. And when we ask people to stay home or not stay home or do different actions. And at the end of the day, if all of the social distancing pieces and, and slow the spread and everything else is successful, the biggest challenge we're going to have is that it means that the right thing happened, there were fewer cases and there were fewer deaths. And people will come out and say, you overreacted, you shouldn't have put these measures in place, it all would have been fine. And there isn't another America somewhere else that we can compare us to. And so I think sometimes we have to do the hard thing with the right thing and asking people to make certain decisions in their own behaviors and their own choices for the greater good. And that can be really tough. But I, I think a lot about uh, Professor Bicknell right now. If I can instill a couple people in thinking about um, the ethics of those decisions and why we care so much about good data and good denominators, it's because those are numbers that can help us make better decisions on how to address a crisis and how to act in a public health crisis. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us today on Conversations with Data. It was absolutely fascinating talking to you. Thanks a lot, Tara. Nice to meet you. Bye. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this, you can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.